Let me invite you now to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Today we're going to focus on one verse, and that is verse 4. I don't know how to say it any other way than just to say it. We're going to talk about sex today. And uh, very candidly, very frankly, and I pray I'll be sensitive to the fact that there are little listening ears here, but at the same time, maybe it'll generate some family discussion. But with that said, um, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. And then also we want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 too for just a moment. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's begin uh, in chapter 7, verse 2. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will not be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband, or she shall be called an adulteress. Excuse me, that's not what I want. I'm reading in Romans. No wonder that's not what I want. I got a haircut. Maybe that's that's what's going on. I don't know. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over uh, her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. It has truth that we need to hear. And we do pray today that the Holy Spirit would enable us to benefit from the preaching of the word by seeing more clearly how much we need Jesus and how much uh, your word has to say to us about every dimension of our life and experience in this world. And we pray that our trust and hope will always be on Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the admonition in the book of Hebrews, back to chapter 13, is very clear. Um, that marriage is to be held in honor 
that is with the highest esteem it is to be regarded as precious and valuable Peter O'Brien basically says that this text really captures the idea of holding marriage as something precious like the same word is used to describe the precious blood of Jesus and that the marriage bed that is a way of speaking of the physical relationship between the man and the woman is to be kept undefiled and that there will be judgment both now and forever if unrepented of for people who violate the sanctity of marriage and sex so let's talk this morning about the subject of sex and marriage and it's very difficult to do in just one message but I will do my best you cannot really talk about marriage at all unless you do talk about sex and how sex relates to marriage at a foundational level we need to understand the basic biblical principles of the sexual ethic of the Bible why does God confine sexual activity exclusively to married couples then once we understand and receive the biblical ethic and reasoning how do we practically in accordance with it as Christians or even single people or as married couples how do we live with it now the first thing I would say is that if you were to talk to any person in the culture most of the time what you will get is something like this many people throughout the ages especially pagan peoples have basically said that sex is just an appetite it's a natural appetite and this view goes something like this sex it was once said was surrounded by taboos but now we realize that sex is indeed like eating or like any other good natural appetite this means we should be free to fulfill the appetite whenever we feel the need uh, and there's no reason why we shouldn't sample a variety of cuisines and continually look for new taste sensations forbidding the satisfaction of a natural appetite or limiting it for years is extremely unhealthy and it's impossible I don't know why you people want to limit it as trying to stop eating for years um, another view of sex is much more negative and it has its deep roots in some forms of ancient thought like Platonism and others but sex is seen as part of our lower physical nature distinct from our higher rational more spiritual nature and in this view sex is dirty it's degrading it's a necessary evil for the propagation of the human race and this view is still very influential in the world as a matter of fact Saint Augustine held a view similar to this Saint Augustine believed and this is probably due to his own past but he believed that sex was the original sin in the garden between Adam and Eve as uh, R.C. Sproul once said it wasn't the fruit in the tree but the pear on the ground that brought the trouble into the universe but that view is still very influential in the word today And when you say the word Christian that's how most people think we think about sex and there's a third view that is also prominent while the first view sees sex as an unavoidable drive and the second is a necessary evil this last view sees sex as a critical form of self-expression the way to be yourself the way to find yourself in this view the individual uh, 
may wish to use sex within marriage and build a family, but that's up to the individual. Sex is primarily for individual fulfillment and self-realization, however he or she wants to pursue it. The biblical attitude towards sex is popularly thought to be the second view. Sex is demeaning and it's dirty. But it is most definitely not. As a matter of fact, I read a study uh, done in the 30s or 40s of the last century by a Harvard um, professor who studied the sexual ethics of Puritans and was absolutely blown away at how liberated these people were in their own homes and in their own marriages. He found exactly what he expected not to find a very healthy form of expression among the Puritans, yet no one ever thinks of Puritans when they think of the word sex, do they? How strange that is. But the biblical attitude toward sex is radically different from every other understanding of sex. Is sex just an appetite? Well, it is a drive, but it's not in the same category as our need for food and sleep. Not at all. Let's say this. Let's say that you send your son off to a university somewhere in the country. And when you're taking him there and dropping him off, what do guys do when they go in their first dorm rooms? Usually they hang up pictures all over the room of whatever they're interested in. And so they sort of, but this particular university was unusual because these kids are away from their parents, they're away from outsiders, so the first thing they do is they put up these incredibly big, beautiful posters of apple pie, spinach, hot dogs, and pizza. And they look so succulent, they're so close. And when they uh, photograph food, you know how they doctor it up. They put hairspray on it. They put water on it. They put light on it so it looks better than ever. And so the men in the dorm are just sitting around looking at it, and they're saying, this is amazing. This is incredible. And they go around to each other's room, and they all look at each other's posters of food on the wall. What would you say about a college like that? You pack your son up and take him elsewhere. But what if you went to a place where you found people paying a lot of money to go into these little clubs. And in the clubs, everybody sits around the stage and the lights are low. And then suddenly this bumping and grinding music starts. And everybody paid a lot of money to get in and they watch. And then out of the center, somebody was slowly, bit by bit, pulling in time to the music in stages the cover off of a hamburger. Everybody says, wow, every night we go out and do this. Sex is not an appetite in the same way food is an appetite. I did that facetiously to get that point across. Indeed, even if our desires cannot simply be de uh, gratified, whatever their level of intensity, most people struggle to discipline their eating because the appetite for food is usually seriously out of line with what our bodies actually need. The sex drive, however, needs more guidance. Sex affects our heart. It affects our inward being, not just our body. Sin, which is first and foremost a disorder of the heart, therefore has a big impact upon sex. Our passions and desires for sex now are very distorted because of the fall.
Sex is for whole life giving. However, the sinful heart wants to use sex for very selfish, self-centered reasons, not self-giving. And therefore, the Bible puts many boundaries around us to use sex in a right way. The Christian ethic can be summarized like this. Sex is for use within marriage between a man and a woman, period. That is the place where sex is to find its uh, application and fulfillment. But sex is not dirty. It is not. Biblical Christianity may be the most positive religion in the world. It teaches that God made matter uh, and, he, and, and that uh, he created the world and he gave us physical bodies and he pronounced over it in Genesis 1, everything was good. And so God declares that material physicality is good. It says that Jesus Christ himself actually took on a human body, which he still has in a glorified form. And that someday he's going to give us all perfect resurrected bodies. It says that God created sexuality and gave the woman and the man to each other. That God officiated the very first wedding ceremony in the garden. And the Bible contains a great deal of love poetry that celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. If anyone says that sex is bad or dirty in itself, we have the entire Bible to contradict him or her. God not only allows sex within marriage, he strongly commands it. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. In the book of Proverbs, husbands are encouraged to let their wives' breasts fill them with delight and to be intoxicated with their sexual love. The book of the Song of Solomon, which nobody knows what to do with, does much barefaced rejoicing in the delights of sexual love in the context of marriage. Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman says the following, The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, and initiates. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 through 16, she boldly exclaims her physical attraction this way. His abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. Most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew is very erotic, even more erotic than what I just read. And most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. The Bible is very uncomfortable if you're prudish. Sex is strictly a private matter, some would say. No, it's not. Is sex, however, primarily a means of individual happiness and fulfillment? No, but that doesn't mean that sex is not about joy or that it's only about duty. The Christian teaching is that sex is primarily a way to know God and build community. And if you use it for those things rather than your own personal satisfaction, it will lead for a greater fulfillment than any of us can ever imagine. The first explicit mention of sex in the Bible is a famous passage in Genesis 2, 24, also quoted by Paul in Ephesians 5. 
Male and female are to be united. They are to become one flesh. When first reading this phrase in English, it appears to be talking only about a physical and sexual union, but it's so much more than that. The word flesh is a synodoke, a figure of speech in which a part of a thing is used to represent the whole. In other words, marriage is a union between people so profound that they virtually become a single new person. The word united, in older translations called cleave, means to make a binding covenant or a contract. A binding covenant or a contract. This covenant brings every aspect of two people's lives together. Every aspect. They essentially merge into a single uh, legal, social, economic unit. They lose much of their independence. In love, they donate themselves wholly to the other. To call marriage one flesh then means that sex is understood both as a sign of that personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. The Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing also to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you've given up your freedom and bound yourself to one person in marriage. Then once you have been given yourself in marriage, sex is a way. Now listen to this closely. I I think this is the most beautiful thing I've learned in my study. That sex is a way of maintaining and deepening the union as the years go by. In the Old Testament, these were called covenant renewal ceremonies. When God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, he directed that periodically there would be an opportunity for them to remember the terms of the covenant by first reading it together and recommitting themselves to it. This was crucial if the people were to sustain sustain a life of faithfulness. It's the same within the marriage covenant. Now, I'm not going to say that marriage is sacramental like the Catholic Church says marriage is sacramental, but it's very close to sacramental. It has sacramental elements to it. It's not a sacrament in the same way the Lord's Supper and baptism are. But there are elements of it that I think we need to remind ourselves of. It is a covenant. And when you get married, you make a solemn covenant with your spouse. And the Bible calls your spouse your covenant partner, Proverbs 2.17. That day is a great day when your hearts are full, but as time goes, there's a need to rekindle the heart and renew the commitment. There must be an opportunity to recall all that the other person means to you and to give yourself anew. Sex between a husband and wife is the unique way to do that. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you, and you must never use sex to say anything else. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place for security and vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. 
And to allow that part, that to me, sex is not so much the reason marriages have, have trouble as it is an indicator that the marriage is in trouble. Because sex is to be the covenant renewal ceremony in which you too review, the man and the woman review their obligations and responsibilities and the joy of connecting in the deepest possible way as human beings. Not just physically, but in every dimension of our experience. Sex is an act that unites us. Paul says that in a number of places. And when he says one flesh, he means becoming one person. A personal union of a man and a woman at all levels of their life. And so... Uh, a scholar by the name of D.S. Bailey wrote this. He said, Paul's thought owes nothing to any antecedent notions and displays a psychological insight into human sexuality, which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. The apostle denies that coitus is no more than an appropriate exercise of the genital organs. On the contrary, he insists that it is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. We all, as married couples, need a place where we can go and reveal our true self and be loved and accepted for it. And that's why God made it. And that's why it only works in that context. Outside of that, it works backwards. It's destructive. It works counter to the health of the union in marriage. And so Paul argues that sex with anyone outside of your wife is a violation uh, of that. Now, sex is also a commitment apparatus. Um, that's an unusual way to say it, but let me explain what that is. The modern sexual revolution finds the idea of abstinence from sex to marriage as being totally unrealistic. It's ludicrous. How many people believe it is psychologically unhealthy and harmful? And yet, despite the contemporary incredulity, this has been the unquestioned uniform teaching, not only of one, but of all the Christian churches, whether they be Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. The Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but rather because it has such a high, lofty view of sex. The biblical views that uh, the biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but is personally harmful. If sex is designed to be a part of a making a, of a covenant and experience covenant renewal, then we should think of sex as an emotional commitment apparatus. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it, or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally, physically joined. Sometimes in the midst of sexual passion, there's a, a, a desire to say such extravagant things like, I always love you. But 
to, to move outside of marriage means the other person has no obligations, no ties to you, no legal, no social, no moral, even to call you back in the morning. And this incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness. Therefore, if you have sex against marriage or outside of marriage, you will have to steel yourself against sex power, sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you one day get married. Ironically, then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backward, making you less able to commit and trust another person. Often when I counsel people who are getting married, married and I find out that they're already living together, I ask them, I remember one couple in specifically, I asked them, to between the time I was counseling and the time I was married, not to live together. For one of them to move out and for them to repent of their sin, which they did. Sometimes they refused to, which leaves me no place to go but to refuse to participate in the wedding. And that's very difficult and very hard. But what you're doing in that process is you're damaging. And it makes us less able to trust and commit to another person. So it's a dangerous, powerful uh, drive and desire in life. Um, as I move on to talk a little bit more, what have I been talking about? The revolutionary view. Now the joy of it. The Bible does confine sex to marriage, no doubt. And we should not be surprised various passages tell us to enjoy sex and to do so frequently. 1 Corinthians 7, which we just read earlier, was a time in which women were legally considered the possession of their husbands. Paul makes the revolutionary claim that the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. It communicates negatively his obligation to refrain from engaging in sexual relations with anyone other than his wife. And positively, now this is in the middle of the Roman Empire. If you know anything about Roman history and how Roman men were, almost all Roman men of some power, position, and prestige had a wife to have his children and heir, but had mistresses everywhere. And Paul is promoting this sex ethic to letters to both Corinth and Rome and other places that were, would make even the average Las Vegas blush at times. But there's an obligation to fulfill marital duty, to provide our partner with that pleasure and satisfaction. And this was a blow to the double standard that was often present in these cities. But I believe that 1 Corinthians 7 is very important. Each marriage is to be more concerned not with getting sexual pleasure, but giving it. Not getting it, but giving it. In short, the greatest sexual pleasure should be the pleasure of seeing your spouse getting pleasure. What a revolutionary idea. When you get to the place where giving arousal is the most arousing thing, you are practicing this principle. Now, kind of bordering on too much information maybe, but let's move on. I mean, I could talk more about it. You know I could, but I'm, I'm going to stop there. There is, of course, in a marriage, a different levels of desire. 
But once you see that sex is about giving pleasure and not getting pleasure, then you can respond to the other person and do it as a gift, not just because you feel like it or want to. Uh, The Bible gives us a very high view of sex. It is a sign and seal of our oneness with each other and with God. We should not be surprised then to discover that you find many problems showing up in the bed, which if it wasn't for sex, you might have never seen. There may be guilt or fear or anger over past relationships. There may be growing mistrust or disrespect or unresolved differences in your present relationship. Sex is such a great and sensitive thing that you cannot sweep this stuff under the rug. Unless your marital relationship is in good condition, sex doesn't work. So be careful to look beneath the surface. A lack of sexual compatibility might not really be a lack of lovemaking skill at all. It may be a sign of a deeper problem in the relationship. And a fundamental rule of marriage is that time marches on. Lewis Smead said, you don't marry one woman or one man, but many. Time, children, illness, and age all bring changes that may require creative discipline responses to rebuild sexual intimacy. But if you don't confront and adapt these changes, they will erode your sex life. Sex is like motor oil for your engine. The parts will burn out quickly. But there's a glory to sex. There is a glory to sex. Sex is not only glorious in that it portrays for us and pictures for us the uh, glory of the Trinity, that is the threeness and the oneness of God in that perichoresis and dance, each deferring and giving glory to and pouring out love to each other. But also, an interesting point I have here is that sex is a foretaste of heaven. And you say, in what way? What heaven are you going to? Just anticipating that there may be somebody out there who has a smart attitude like I do. But, which I'm repenting of every day. Getting really better at. Probably have a big fall right after this. Though. Paul says that when you see a wife and husband experience oneness of love of soul and body and the most rapturous sex between two utterly committed people utterly naked to each other utterly known utterly loved mysteriously awesome to each other for one bright shining moment it's not Camelot that you feel for one bright shining moment Paul says you're getting a foretaste of what it's like or what it will be like to be utterly known utterly loved utterly united to the real mysteriously awesome different source of your souls God himself sex is a sign When I lived in Louisiana, General Assembly one year was in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And so I knew that Disney World was on the way. And so I told my kids, we're going to go to Disney World after General Assembly. And of course, they were pretty pumped up about it. They were at the right age to go to Disney World. And so I was driving, and I started driving east. And about when I got to about um, Tallahassee, Florida or actually crossed the Florida state line, signs started appearing, telling me all about the wonders 
of Epcot Center and Disney World and Universal Studios and I mean one sign after the other. And let's say that after about 100 miles I pulled the car over to the sign, sat there and said, we're here, we're going to camp here, we're here. Because I kept hearing in the back seat, are we there yet? Are we, when are we going to get there? Let's say I just pulled in and said, we're here. You say, well, you're stupid. But that's how we see signs. We don't camp at the sign. We look beyond the sign to see what the sign's pointing to. And sex in marriage points is a foretaste to the absolute joy of being in the presence of God forever. Sex is a foretaste of what it's going to be like to know God in heaven. And that's what the Bible says. And it's genius. It keeps us from degrading sex. On the other hand, it keeps us from pressing sex for more than it can possibly give us. It is the most glorious view of sex that any religion has ever come up with. Any philosophy could ever come up with. Sex is a participation, a foretaste of heaven of being in the presence of God at the wedding supper of the Lamb forever. Why do you think it's called a wedding supper? Why does uh, God call Israel his bride in the Old Testament? Why why is Christ our bridegroom and, and we are the bride in the New Testament? Because he's pointing to the ecstasy of being in the joy of the Lord present forever. That's our hope. And so sex is a sign pointing that in the confines of, of marriage, a marriage that is, involves total commitment. And so the Bible tells us that what we really want, what we're really seeking for in every act of that with our partner is the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we need to stand on that day before the ultimate beautiful face, the face we've been looking for all our lives in all other beautiful faces we have surveyed. On that day, we'll be naked to that face. No clothing, no no armor can keep it out. It will be utterly beautiful. What, What we want more than anything else is that face, the face of God, that awesomely mysterious other to look at us and say, This is my lover. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Now, the fact of the matter is for someone to say to you, I want you to be naked and vulnerable to me. But if that person isn't naked and vulnerable to you, that's rape. On that day, we will be naked to that face. There won't be anything like that in heaven. If I'm going to be naked before God, I'm going to be open before God. That would be awful. John Paul Sartre said, I can't believe in God because I don't want to believe in a God before whom I'm always naked. Poor John Paul. You have to read the New Testament in which it says, God became a human being and he was so utterly committed to us that he became vulnerable. He was stripped naked on the cross. He became totally vulnerable to you so you could see him face to face. He paid for your sins. Now what does the great wedding supper of the Lamb mean as I conclude? It means this. God says says to us in so many words, I'm going to pour out all my love into your heart. And I want you to enjoy me 
and participate in the liberty and joy of being with me forever. And so understand that. The, the biblical view of sex is so much bigger and more comprehensive and so much deeper and more penetrating and so much more intimate and so much more glorious and so much more better than anything else there is. We should be the avant-garde of society in enjoying our married lives. Now, I know for some of you, you're sitting there going, well, good for you, <laughs> but I'm single. Good for you, I was married, but I'm not now. Good for you, what word do you have for me, pastor? Same thing, same thing. Sex is not ultimate. It is not something we have to have to have life. Sex points to what is ultimate. What is joy? But one who is single now, for whatever reason, can still enjoy a close face-to-face -face relationship with God where they are utterly vulnerable, utterly naked, utterly accepted, utterly rejoiced over and loved. And so while it might be challenging to grasp that by faith, it is the truth. I think that's all I want to say about it today. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift of sexuality and the wonderful gift of sex. We thank you that it can be redeemed. We thank you also that sitting in front of me and standing behind this pulpit are people who have failed in that realm, people who have misused it, people who have abused it, people who have come short of what you've given to us in your word. Uh, but because of the love of Jesus for us, we have the courage to look at it and acknowledge it and own it and confess it and turn from it. And we know that you have the resources to heal us from ways in which we've been damaged and renew us and allow us to participate with even greater depth and intensity. Now, Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you this day that we would give as people who are in love with you and who want to communicate to you um, the fact that we love you because you first loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.